This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's greatest homebrewers to get their tips and tricks straight into your brain. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode... We're going to start with a little bit of feedback because we always have feedback and we love your feedback and we love sharing our feedback. Then we're going to go to the pub. We're going to talk some of the beer news that's going on in the world. Uh, stop by the library for a quick hit on some malt knowledge that you might want to know. And then we're going to head off into the lounge and we're actually going to double up our lounge segments today because we're waiting to get a special guest to talk one of our experimental results. And then obviously we go into our quick tip for the week and something other than beer. And then you're on with your week. Wow. That sounds busy, man. Uh, I just want to point something out. Uh, for an audio engineer, starting the show with feedback is never a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Check one, two. <laughs> siblings, I'm siblings. Sorry. Nerd joke. I'm, I apologize. Yeah, three lashes with a wet ukulele. <laughs> So, uh, we have uh, a response to one of our previous episodes, huh? Yeah, I thought this was rather cool. So, uh, Blair Street, I think that's how we say the name, right? Uh, uh, Blair Street from the AHA forum reflected all the way back on episode 23. So, this is episode 35. So, carry the one, carry the, that. That was a number of weeks ago. Uh, the episode that we did with Brainbridge Island, uh, that you went up there and you interviewed Russell. Right. And he, he said... Based on this episode, I made a one-gallon stovetop batch of the Cool Ranch Dorito beer. I went with about one-third Cool Ranch Doritos by weight, one-third pills, and one-third pale two-row with a little bit of Cascade fermented with WLP-001. Here are my observations. One, flavor-wise, 
This is way more appealing slash compatible with beer than I would have imagined, though still totally weird. Two. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Two. Using some of the herbs and spices from the Cool Ranch Doritos without the chips themselves would probably be better. Dealing with the oil is gross, though even at one gallon, you can manage to rack below the oil and minimize pickup. Mmm. Dorito oil. Three. At 33% of the grist by weight, the Cool Ranch flavor is way too intense for my taste. Uh, in other words, it's interesting that a few ounces at a time, but I would never drink a full pint of this. That said, I agree that it has some nice flavors that are compatible with a summer lawnmower-type beer. I'm curious to adjust this and try again based on these observations. Not sure when I'll get around to it, but I wanted to post this in case anyone else is moving along the same lines and too afraid to admit what they've done. Well, you can never be too afraid <laughs> to admit like what that. you've done. <laughs> also, th- really? I know. also, thanks to Drew for the recommendation of the Anova sous vide cooker. In addition to making some great food over the past several months, it came in handy as a mash temp stabilizer for this one-gallon batch. Keep it weird, everyone. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, I guess I'll uh, I'll contact Russell and see if he runs into an oil problem when he makes this beer. Uh, I know he talked about clearing out shelves of Doritos, so uh, obviously he uses a lot of them in there. But uh, I, I relayed uh, Blair's uh, email to uh, to Russell, and he did mention that if the oil is giving you trouble with uh, with heading. Uh, he recommends adding just a dash of carapils to help out. So there you go. If you've made the Cool Ranch Dorito beer, there's a little modification for it. Uh, and on the sous vide cooker angle, all I can say is, yeah, I love those things. I have one going right now uh, doing some pork chops, and I love them so much I actually have a second one now because I'm weird. <laughs> weird indeed, man. And we also got an email from James Wilson from Epsom. 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 The UK. Whoa, man. So uh, that must be where the salts come from. Yeah, indeed. All right. And he he wrote in to ask us what we thought of the new uh, New England IPA that was being written up for a potential as a specialty IPA subcategory for the recent BJCP guideline modifications. Uh, And listed the whole thing. It was actually a fairly reasonable sort of summary of what the style was. And Denny, it even went and summarized what they thought juicy meant. Yeah, yeah, I know, man. Uh, well, that's gotta happen. So, but James, uh, James asked for our feedback on the, the guidelines and we'll, we'll include a link to where those guidelines are going to be. And my response to his whole concern about it is, you know, at least to my mind, uh, whether or not you like this particular style, whether or not you think this particular style is a, thing deserving recognition uh and let's face it i think we've all had good or bad examples of beers like this uh there are there have been enough distinct developments around the style around the idea around interest in brewing the style that at this point it just makes some sense to put some parameters around it and allow people to enter it for judging yeah absolutely yeah uh you know, I, I think it's well known I'm not a huge fan of the style, but that doesn't mean that I don't want people to brew it. And, you know, they have already expanded the guidelines to have black, white, red, yellow, purple, green IPA. So why the heck not a New England juicy IPA, too? You know? yeah. like, like you say, people are brewing them. They want to enter them in competitions. And if they're going to enter them in competitions, there has to be some definition of it. Yeah, or at the very least, it helps to have a definition around it. And I think actually the bigger problem for entrance is going to be uh, 
that they're going to run into uh, judges who either hate the style and are going to be super pissy about having to judge anything related to the style or people who are going to have their own very particular definition of what the style is. And damn it, you didn't agree with my definition. And frankly, on that second one, that's always going to be a problem no matter what the style is. Yeah. It could be Bohemian Pilsner. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, man. I, uh, I once judged English bitters with a commercial brewer who sat there and pontificated that the BJCP guidelines were totally wrong about what a bitter is. It should be like this. And he told us what it should be. And we pretty much said to him, we, we don't care. <laughs> you know, it, you're in a homebrew competition. We judge to the guidelines. That's the way it works. Yeah. Well, the other thing I thought was funny, and I learned this in reading the guidelines. The guidelines were actually put together, I think, from somebody from the UK and submitted to the BJCP as a possible inclusion. And all throughout the guidelines for this New England IPA, it talks about new world hops, new world hops, new world hops. And you say new world to me, I think North and South America. And so my immediate concern was, well, but hey, wait a second. I've had a lot of these New England IPAs that are heavy in hops from Australia or New Zealand. Uh, so I asked, wait, to you guys in the UK, does the New World also incorporate Australia and New Zealand? And they're like, well, yeah, that's all the New World to us. <laughs> so I think I, I think yeah, that has to be careful. People have to be careful about that as well, because I think that will be a terminology that will confuse people like, hey, why does this have Australian hops in it? That's not New World. Yeah, right. But that that just requires some semantic tweaking. No, I don't. But still, it, it, it amused me. It's like, oh, hey, it's cookies and biscuits <laughs> all over again. That's right, man. And we have to admit that you're easily amused. I am. It, it keeps the world more interesting that way. So uh, we have a new episode of Brew Files out. came out a week ago, and it's all about the mighty oat. Yeah, one of my favorite ingredients. And if you haven't uh, taken a chance, we finally broke our promise. It only took us four episodes. Uh, it is not 30, 30 minutes long. It's 39 minutes long, but it's Denny and I talking about uh, <laughs> oats. My uh, One of my favorite things to brew with, one of Denny's least favorite things, I think, or most puzzling things. And... Yeah, I, I was really happy with how that episode turned out because I think we we covered a lot of ground, a lot more ground than I think you would think there is to talk about a single humble plant. And if you only have 30 minutes, you can just uh, skip nine minutes of me talking. Yeah, well, hey, good luck with that. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, we're getting great, great feedback on the episodes. Uh, if you have ideas for the brew files, uh, please let us know at podcast at Experimental Brew. Uh, you can see what we're trying to do there. 30-minute quick hit episodes on various brewing topics. So if you have a topic you want us to cover uh, or somebody that you want us to talk to, like if there's a person who you want to hear how they develop a recipe, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And in the meanwhile, watch for the next episode. Episode 5 will be coming one week after this episode drops. That's right. That's right. And uh, we also want to remind you that uh, for this podcast, Experimental Brewing, we have an all Q&A episode coming up next time around. So get those questions in. You can send them to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can call our Experimental Brewing hotline, 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1-AIL. Call now. Operators are standing by. And by operators, we mean the almighty computer. Yeah, the voicemail. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, so you can, uh, you can call, you can leave us a, a message with your question and, uh, we'll get to play your, uh, your question on the show and, uh, we might even have an answer for it. All right. And then also coming up, since it's almost April Fool's time, we decided why not cover brewers being fools? Like me. Yeah, exactly. So this is episode 35. In episode 37, which will be on March 29th, we want to cover brewer disaster stories. So if you have a good story of a day gone horribly, horribly wrong, a.k.a. the no good, horrible, terrible brew day, please let us know. Drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or again, call our voicemail box at 626-765-1-ALE and leave us a story because we frankly want to share in everybody's misery for for. You know, well, what happens during a brew day? And it can be anything. It could be the time that you got so drunk you forgot the end of your brew session. It could be the time that you showed up late to a brew session and a friend chopped off their finger in a mill. Or it could be the time that you were brewing a batch of beer and a garage door slammed into the back of your head. All those could be from me. That's all terrible stuff, man. Yeah, well, all those actually happened to me. So... If you have stories like that, please, we, we want to we wanna share them out with everybody because I think everybody could use a good laugh on April 1st. Uh, and I think Denny has enough magic stuff in the magic bags that I'm going to say right now, if we use your story and we like your story, then we'll be sending you some swag. Uh, yeah, and this, this whole thing was kind of uh, instigated by uh, my recent terrible brew day, which I call the supreme arrogance of the 511th batch. Of course you would. <laughs> yeah, because that's kind of what it was. So anyway, uh, send in your brew disaster stories. Again, a podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can call 626-765-1-ALE and leave them there. And we'll need those stories by March 23rd. So get your stories in by March 23rd so Denny has time to edit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Work, 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 work. Always at work. Okay, so we want to talk to you a little bit about how you can support the podcast. If you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you will see a bunch of links there you can click on. One of them is for Brew Your Own magazine. If you click on that, you can subscribe to Brew Your Own. Uh, there's one for the American Homebrewers Association that lets you join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy magazine. And there is yet another one for Amazon. And if uh, you go through our website, experimentalbrew.com, when you buy something from Amazon, we get just a bit of a kickback from that. And it doesn't cost you a thing. It's coming out of Amazon's pocket. So please, if you're going to uh, subscribe to Brew Your Own, join the American Homebrewers Association or order from Amazon, think of doing it from our website, experimentalbrew.com. And the last link we have there that you should click on is the Patreon link. That allows you to contribute whatever amount you feel like to our charity of choice. And uh, for the last six months of last year, we had the Children's Tumor Foundation as our charity, and we raised $683 for them. And uh, right now, it's the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, and we're trying to make a cool grand for them. So uh, click on that Patreon link, contribute whatever you can for the doggies, and we'll get it to them. Yay. It's a rough life. 
<laughs> yeah, indeed. It's a rough life for those guys, and we want to help make it better and find them good homes. So uh, please help us help them. Okay, man, I'm getting dry. Is it about time for a beer? I think so. Okay. We're going to uh, head on over to the pub, talk about the beer life, and we will be right back. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. And we are sitting in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA. We are drinking beers today. What you having, Drew? Uh, I am drinking a beer from a brand new microbrewery not too far away from me uh, called Arrow Lodge Brewing Company. And I'm having their Happy Cal Milk Stout because it's still a little cool down here and still time for good stout weather. And this one's 5.5% or thereabouts. And it is... Rich and chocolatey like somebody made beery chocolate milk. It's just good. Wow. 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 So is it like a chocolate milk stout? Well, I mean, it's not uh, no cacao nibs in it or anything like that. They do have a version with it, but that's not what I had. Uh, And it's just, no, I mean, it's just intensely chocolatey. I think there's something about the way the, the lactose is set up in it to kind of really reinforce a sort of uh, sweetness and plays off against the roast malts, and so it just comes. It right. comes off with more right. of a yeah, chocolate, uh, chocolate tone to it than any of the kind of the more harsh, acrid type uh, uh, roast malts. Right. Well, I'm having a, an IPA from Gigantic, uh, who we visited a few months back when we were up in the Portland area. This is like pretty much the perfect straight ahead Northwest style IPA, which is what I love. You know, it's got all the uh, Centennial, Chinook, Cascade, Simcoe, you know, all that kind of hop to it. Uh, perfect balance, even though I, I try and avoid the B word, it is there. Uh, it is, I mean, you know, it, it's a hoppy beer and the malt is there to back it up, but uh, it's definitely the hops that speak and I just absolutely adore this style of beer. Well, there you go. I, I liked it better when you were talking about you picked up a gigantic IPA because that puts a different a different <laughs> image in my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was a 22-ounce bottle, and for me, that's kind of gigantic. But, uh, you know, it, it was an IPA from Gigantic Brewing in Portland. Well, there you go. Those are good beers, and I could, uh, I could definitely go for another one of those gin barrels. <laughs> oh, man, no kidding. And, you know, and I had uh, resolved I was going to start trying to put gin in an IPA when I had it, and I have not done that yet, so uh, 
There's a reminder to Denny right there. Well, stop freezing up your water pipes in the brewery and, and get to brewing, slacker. Oh, man. Yeah, I wish. I wish. Hopefully we're past that kind of weather here. So uh, it's about time for our registration for HomebrewCon to open. We're gearing up for it. We hope that you are, too. It's going to be in Minneapolis this year, and uh, registration opens on March 7th, so get in there and register quick, because it goes quick. Yeah, and there's going to be, I mean, a ton of ton of things going on around this particular conference. They've changed up uh, some of the parts of the, the conference schedule, for instance, uh, like no more, uh, no more award banquet. So the, the banquet's gone now because they had a number of complaints over the years and it was kind of an extra expense and it left a lot of people who just wanted to be able to see the awards out of the, out of the picture, out of the room. So now there will actually be a separate reward ceremony, kind of like what they do at the GBF. There'll be a closing night kick, uh, you know, I was going to say kickoff party, but I guess it's not a kickoff party. It's a kickout party. Uh, <laughs> all, so- yeah. all sorts of things going on, but that's June 15th through 17th in Minneapolis. Denny and I, of course, will be there. We will be doing podcasty type stuff. We will be doing a seminar with our good friend Marshall, and we're just going to be having a grand old time. And maybe if there's enough interest, we can get something going to have a little party during the conference. Yeah, right. And and let me say, it's not just Marshall. It's Marshall and Malcolm both, two, uh, the Brewlosophy guys, two of them. And uh, we're going to be doing a seminar about uh, homebrew experimentation, how to set up an experiment, and especially how to interpret the results and what not to read into them. Well, there you go. And look, I mean, if nothing else, it's a big damn party. It's a lot of fun. So even if you don't care about learning, it's a lot of beer to be had and a lot of fun. And and you get to see a lot of a lot of people. Like, and Denny, how many years have you gone now? Uh, let me see. My first one was in 2006, and I missed Philadelphia due to circumstances beyond my control. Mm-hmm. So this will be my tenth or eleventh one. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I've I've been going. I think I've missed three since 2001, which is my first one. You know, there's there's a lot of beer there. There's a lot of seminars there. There's a great trade show, so you can check out all the newest gear. But let me tell you, the best reason to go is the people. You'll meet people that maybe you've only uh, met online. You'll meet people who have written books. Uh, you'll meet people you didn't know you were going to meet, and they're all great people. So that, to me, is really the fun part. Well, they're all great people, except for John Palmer. He's kind of a dick. Well, yeah, Palmer. I mean, you know, what can you say about Palmer? (laughs) Sorry, John. Sorry, John. (laughs) He knows we love him. (laughs) All right. Well, hey, there we go. HomebrewCon, it's coming. Get your tickets. Make your plans. We'll see you there. Yep. Registration March 7th. Once again, get on it right away. All right. And in the next story, Walmart is in beer news this week. Yeah, so Walmart's being sued. I mean, and that's nothing new. I mean, Walmart's getting sued all the time. But this is a class action right. f- lawsuit that was filed in Ohio against Walmart because they're claiming that their private label beer that they do, which is, uh, let's see, uh, Cats Away IPA, After Party Pale Ale, Round Midnight Belgian White, and Red Flag Amber, uh, which they sell pretty much across the country, are illegally being marketed as uh, craft beer, and it turns out that you know these are actually being 
uh, brewed by Genesee Brewing Company, who we just talked about on the Brew Files, which is owned by a Costa Rican company called Florida Ice and Farm Company. So the people who are suing Walmart are basically saying that uh, defendant's craft beer has never been a craft beer, nor has it been produced by a craft brewery. Rather, it is a wholesale fiction created by the defendant that was designed to deceive consumers into purchasing craft beer at a higher inflated price. Uh, so. <laughs> Some people have too much time, don't they? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I get the idea, and I get why you want to sort of go, hey, that's a terrible thing that you're doing. But at the same time, I, mean, I think not that long ago, we talked about the fact that uh, craft beer as a term, or as a useful term, is somewhat limited. Uh, yeah, I would say that it's uh, so limited as to be practically meaningless, uh, you know. I, I realize that uh, the Brewers Association really wants to try and get a definition of craft beer because that's their market. And, you know, that makes sense to me. But I just don't think that anybody's really come up with a good one yet. And uh, to, to sue a company because the beer doesn't meet your particular definition of craft beer, I just kind of, like, have to shake my head. Well, I mean, the good thing which is... I'm doing right now. Yeah, well, I mean, the good news is they are basing their lawsuit around the Brewers Association definition of craft beer. But, you know, so, I mean, they're at least trying to uh, reinforce that ground. So, I don't know. It's just, it's a very weird lawsuit to me. I totally get it, though, because it is kind of that, hey, you know, at what point in time does this become, uh, this, this sort of fakery become fraudulent? And I guess the question is, d does it actually ever really become fraudulent in this way? Or is it really just up to the consumer to know that, you know, the beer that you're buying is really a craft beer if... Craft beer to you means handmade by people who you know. Yeah, uh, to me, it's like if you are that much against big beer, then you're going to be the kind of person who will do the research and find out what this is all about. Um, and if you're the kind of person who just doesn't give a crap about big beer and what they're doing, then if this beer looks good to you, you're going to buy it, and that's fine, too. So there you go. What do you guys think? I don't know. I, I hope I haven't uh, lost my credentials there. But, you know, uh, to me, this is just one of those things that is silly and doesn't really matter. Yeah. Well, and I, I kind of agree, but I want to know, you know, what, what do you, our listeners think? You know, I mean, is there a point yeah. at which this sort of crosses over? Is there kind of this trickery thing? Is, the, is this a matter of concern? I and mean, I think one could argue that there are probably far greater things to, to worry about in the world, but it's still a thing. You know, so what, what do you think, guys and gals? Is this a uh, something to get concerned about? Is this a, a lawsuit that you could support? Or is it really just kind of a case of somebody trying to pick an easy target and stick it to the man? Which it kind of feels a little bit like. <laughs> yeah, really. Let's let's hear your opinions. Uh, are, are we totally off the mark? Uh, do you agree with the guys filing the lawsuit or... Uh, you think it's kind of uh, silly like we do. So. Yep. But something that, uh, that isn't real silly uh, is an article that uh, John Hall just wrote for All About Beer magazine. You may remember that we interviewed John uh, last year, actually, uh, for the podcast. And you can mm -hmm. go listen to uh, John and all of his glory in that episode. But, yeah, John, uh, John dropped a, uh, a number on the Internet this week. And 
Uh, it's gotten a big response. Yeah, he has. And it's it's an issue that we have uh, addressed more than a few times here on this show, too. And that is uh, using sexism in beer marketing. And I'm sure that you've pretty much gotten the idea that uh, we are very, very much opposed to it. And if breweries do it, we will call them out on it. And then there have been breweries who have... Uh, actually change their marketing once they've been called out by other people and uh, done the right thing. And we make sure that we uh, talk about that, too. But John kind of took a different tack because rather than calling out the people who do this, his new policy at All About Beer is just not to even mention them, not to give them any kind of publicity or notice whatsoever. And I have to say that I kind of like that approach. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I know there are going to be some people out there who uh, will call this political correctness run amok. But as we've stated before in the past, you know, I think it's a fair summary of our philosophy about life that, you know, kindness matters. And, you know, to always, to <laughs> yeah. always take the kind tact first. So, you know, in this particular case, you know, these names are really the equivalent of middle middle school sophomore humor and if yeah to me the amount of humor that i lose in my life by not using them is so unimportant that uh if it makes somebody feel better i have no problems with it and also at the same time from the economic point of view if you're not a person who wants to argue about the sociological point uh, point of view if you if you think that's people being too sensitive from an economic point of view for these breweries it makes no sense to potentially cheese off half your audience for me, it really comes down to a matter of being kind. I mean, I don't see the harm in saying, hey, guys, why can't we just be kind? Uh, to quote the great Kurt Vonnegut, Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. On the outside, babies, you've got a hundred years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. Damn it, you've got to be kind. There you go. Damn it, you've got to be kind. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so we've had our little philosophical ramble here as we uh, drink our beers. It's time to wander over to the library and uh, talk about an article that Drew discovered about one of his favorite brewing ingredients. So uh, we'll be right back to do that. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. made our way over here to the library. We put on our smoking jackets and uh, poured ourselves yet another beer. We're sitting in these comfy chairs surrounded by bookshelves full of books, most of which are about brewing. And uh, Drew's going to talk about an article he just read. 
Yeah, so this is from uh, Sprout Malting, uh, S-P-R-O-W-T Malt, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're uh, a company that does small-scale equipment for taking grain and making it into malt. Uh, and so kind of kind of a cool thing, and I just uh, discovered them the other week, but they published an article about what's arguably my favorite base malt and what seems to end up in half of my beers, which is Maris Otter. And it's a, just a, a real quick thing uh, from February 8th and basically walks through and, and talks about the history of Maris Otter, uh, where it comes from, uh, why it kind of almost completely vanished, and how it's kind of enjoying a, a little bit of a renaissance. Because this is what I think uh, 2015 was the 50th anniversary, so this is 52 years that the malt has existed. And if you know anything about the sort of malting industry as it exists these days, 52 years for a single strain is unprecedented. I mean, really. The malts just don't... Yeah, man, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, malts uh, malts just don't live uh, live that long. And the reason for it is because the maltsters are constantly coming up with new varieties that either have better yield, uh, better uh, resistance to disease... Uh, better harvestability, uh, maybe better flavor. <laughs> That's kind of like way <laughs> down the list in terms of what they're actually going for. But it, there's a whole sort of agronomics type uh, argument to changing up malt styles all the time or malt varieties. And so Maris Otter being 52 years old is kind of amazing. One of the fun facts I learned here in the article was that in the last 15 years in the camera championships in Britain, Beers that were brewed with Maris Otter have won 11 of them of the 15. That's pretty, pretty spectacular. And the other one was that where Maris Otter came from is from a, a, a plant breeding initiative in the UK, the UK uh, Plant Breeding Institute, uh, PBI. And it was on Maris Lane. So M-A-R-I-S Lane. And the Maris Otter is not the only malt to carry the Maris name. There were a whole bunch of others, all with animal names, none of which survived in the exact same way that Maris Otter did. So there could have been like Maris Puma malt that could have been still being used today. But uh, Maris Otter is the one that lived. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, a Maris Dingo is the one that I'm really sad didn't make it. A Dingo drank my beer. <laughs> there you go. Terrible Australian accent. Uh, but yeah, it, it, the fact that this survived for 50, uh, 50 plus years is absolutely amazing. And it really did kind of come back after almost vanishing from the market. Really great article, really great uh, thing to read. And they talk about how they sort of reinvented the, the strain into modern times. It is yeah. one of my favorite malts. You should totally use it. It, it definitely was a fascinating, interesting, and fun article. I would definitely recommend that you guys check it out. And, of course, we'll have a link to it on the website so that you can. Yes, indeed. So there you go. There's your there's your library lesson. Return your library cards. You no longer have to be silent because now it's time for us to go someplace else, right? That's right. It is time for us to head over to the lounge. We have a bonanza today. We have two different interviews that we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking to Lou Bryson about Session Beer Day, which is coming up on April 7th. And uh, we're going to be going back to North Dakota with Drew, where he talks to Susan Rude about making mead and selling it. So uh, stick around. We're going to take a break, and we will be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. 
Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest Yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest Yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Bryson with us today to talk about Session Beer Day coming up here on April 7th. Uh, hey, Lou, how are you today? Doing very well. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Great, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Not a problem at all. Always uh, happy to spread the gospel. <laughs> really? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the origin of Session Beer Day. It didn't actually start with um, Session Beer, oddly enough. It started with... Um, I think the thing that started with was originally brown ale. Um, I was talking to uh, Bill Kovaleski, the uh, founder at uh, co-founder at Victory Brewing in downtown Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was complaining about all the um, the uh, you know like all you all you brewers ever do, and I mean I realize that's as bad as saying the media, but <laughs> uh, all you, all you brewers ever do, you know, you keep coming out with these. Bizarre strong beers, or you know, um, mash hopped beers, or look at this, we did this beer. I remember at one point somebody at the brewery said to me, "He's like, honestly, I think next we're going to like boil hot dogs in water and make beer with that, so we can have a meat beer." <laughs> I'm like, "This is all you ever do," and he says, "Well, it's your fault." I'm like, "What? What do you mean?" He says, "Well, not you specifically, but it's all you guys want to write about." He said, "You know." If we're doing our thousandth batch of, I don't know, brown ale, nobody cares. I'm like, wow, you know, he's right. Um, in fact, if you're just, you know, if, if, well, actually, Victory did finally come out with a, with a pale ale, their headwaters pale ale, which was excellent. And of course, it actually did get press coverage, but that was after we, <laughs> anyway, um, I got to thinking about what he had said and I thought, you know, it's the small beers that don't get any attention and I want to get them some love. And, you know, in the, in the course of about three weeks that it quickly morphed into, you know, they're not getting any love because there aren't any, let's see if we can get people interested in, in drinking and brewing these. And I mean, we were pretty much off to the races really quick. It astounded me how quickly, I mean, small amounts of attention, but there was obviously a receptive audience out there. And when I, and when I say out there, I mean, we're going back, this is 10 years ago, actually, this is 2007. And that is when generally, I mean, you're right, that's when people were into the really big oh, stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that big uh, New Yorker article on extreme beer came out in 2008, so. Right, right. Yeah. So you're in the Philadelphia area. Are there a bunch of people making session beers around there? There are, and actually, um, I was kind of spoiled at that time by how many there were. And, uh, in fact, I, I think the people around here kind of looked at me funny when I brought up the idea. It's like, yeah, we got that. <laughs> like, well, yeah, you do, but 
you were weird. You got loggers too, you know? Yeah, right. Well, and nobody knew about them. So even right. if they're making them, you know, it, it doesn't really make much difference. Uh, no. I was going to say, Drew, what about the L.A. area? You see many down there? Yeah, but I mean, it's mostly the same thing that you'd expect from kind of the West Coast thing where, you know, there are a lot of session IPAs, a lot of – really, it's like, hey, what happened to the idea of a pale ale? (laughs) But we do have a couple of – we do have a couple of British-oriented breweries that are making bitters and milds and whatnot, which I dearly, dearly love. So I'm happy that those are in existence. But yeah, we still have very much the West Coast obsession with hops. The reason I asked you guys about that was because I started doing some research because I was trying to think of what is like that around here in the Eugene area, and there really isn't very much. Uh, we have uh, over in Springfield, kind of our connected city, we have a, a little brew pub called Plank Town that occasionally uh, will whip out uh, something sessionable. That's kind of how they started, but uh, I think that they found that people wanted other things, so they don't make those as much. Yeah. Uh, up in, up in Oak Ridge, about 40, 50 miles away, out in the middle of the logging hills, there's a, a little place called Brewers Union that makes nothing but English styles and does them beautifully. And, and they make a couple, but they're, they're not really distributed anywhere. So I started doing some research and about the only thing I can find in the Pacific Northwest is something from, uh, Deschutes that they call River Ale. That's a, uh, th- oh, yeah. 3.9 percent, 28 IBU beer, uh, made of uh, pale malt, Munich, Carapils, and Crystal. Which I look at that grist bill and I go, man, that is a, a beer that's going to have some some body and mouthfeel to it, just because of the grist that they used. Well, that's what I mean. One of the um, one of the arguments we ran into early on uh, with this, and there was. Um, you know, there was a surprising amount of pushback on this before it even got rolling. I mean, as soon as we even started to talk about the idea of small beers, I, good God, you'd have thought we were saying, well, you know what, we talked to your bank, and if you brew big beers, you're not going to get any more money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, um, one of the one of the big things was about money, and, and people, uh, and this was drinkers. I mean, we got a lot of pushback from uh, beer aficionados as well. Uh, you know, if the beer is going to have less alcohol, I want it to cost less. Which, of course, leads me to the first thing. I was like, oh, really? So that's what you're drinking for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because vodka is pretty cheap. Oh, man. Um, but the second thing is, like, you don't really know how much beer costs, do you? <laughs> well, at least, at least where the costs are, right? I mean, everybody thinks, oh, you know, more malt, more hops. It's got to be more expensive. It's like you, the malt and the hops are like the least expensive part of the whole thing. No, but no, yeah, you're right, man. It's like the ingredients are not the major thing no. in, in the cost of a beer. It's, I mean, when you're talking about a six-pack sitting on the shelf in a supermarket, I, you know, depending on the beer, but say an average beer of, of five and a half to, to six and a half percent, Materials are like twenty percent of the cost. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, and and even even the equipment is not that outrageous. You know, it's it's the cost of the the labor. Well, to, yeah, the transportation. And yeah, exactly. Taxes, yeah. of 
course. And and getting it on store shelves, you know, sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, man. It, yeah. It's, it's like uh, the alcohol. And paying off the writers. You know, that's, that's a, <laughs> not a small expense. We have to get our, our draft money that everybody's sure we're getting. Yeah, I was going to say, so when does this paying off the writers get start? <laughs> I think we're supposed to get checks next month. Oh, good. They keep telling me. Yeah, next right. Month. Yeah, next month, next month. Next month. <laughs> and and it, then it'll be next month after that. Of course. Yeah. We're here tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so have you got a favorite low alcohol beer these days? Um, as usual, and I think I, I may have said this last year, the Yards Brawler. I mean, it's here, it's good, and it's all over Philadelphia. It's, I want to say 4.2%. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a dark mild, but they don't call it a dark mild anywhere. They don't call it a session beer anywhere. They just put it out there and people drink the bejesus out of it. It's their second biggest seller. Yeah, you know, uh, when I was at, uh, at, uh, GABF, uh, last September, I had actually remembered you talking about Brawler, so I sought it out there, and damn, you were right. That's a great beer. It's a nice beer. They, they, I mean, they have a, a, a whole fest just for Brawler. Oh, really? Yeah, they have, like, all kinds of food trucks in, they have, uh, entertainment, and Brawler's the only beer they serve. People love it. Man, you know what? And I, I really like uh, the fact that they took this little beer and named it Brawler. I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a barley wine kind of name. So it takes it takes a lot of guts to do that with a session and, beer. And the label is a picture of a guy well, bare knuckle fighting the devil. Well, <laughs> it's a scrappy, it's a scrappy right. little beer. Yeah, really, that's right. Take on all comers. Drew, Drew, you got a favorite these days? Uh, Yeah, you know, the one I keep drinking a lot of is, uh, I mentioned we have a couple of British-oriented breweries here in L.A. Uh, There's one in Van Nuys, not too far from where I used to live, called Mm -hmm. McLeod Ale Company. And uh, they have, you know, they have nothing but, uh, well, they used to have nothing but cask engines in the tap room. Now they have a couple of nitro taps and whatnot. But uh, they have a beer that they've been doing pretty much since open, called Little Spree, and it's, they bill it as a Yorkshire Pale Ale. It's very much kind of uh, modeled after Landlord from uh, Timothy wow. Taylor, and they serve that on cask, and yeah, you know what? It's a damn fine pint of beer. It comes in, I think, like at, right at four and a half, um, and sometimes they've done some smaller beers, too. Like, they had a really nice bitter that was like 3.8, so those are uh, those are some really, really tasty ones, but I mean, even still... There are a couple places that are starting to play around with doing some uh, Belgians uh, that are sessionable. So uh, one of the recipes I'm going to include in this year's recipe collection is for a grisette. Uh, that is going to be a nice low alcohol grisette, uh, just exactly like what you'd want. And so that way you can start to escape some of the nominal notion of Britishisms that we Yeah, you know, and I was going to say that uh, around here in Eugene, most of the low alcohol beers are not english inspired there are things like uh, goza and berliner weiss mm-hmm. you know um there's yeah, there's actually there's a lot of tricks in the bag yeah there there are and you know when when you're talking session beers people kind of like automatically pop those english styles into their head but there's a lot of other stuff out there i, I would be remiss if i did not uh bring up uh notch brewing in uh, salem massachusetts um Chris Loring has been on this as long as I have. In fact, uh, not long after I started the whole thing, he got in touch with me. 
Chris used to uh, brew back in the 90s. He had a, a place called uh, Tremont Brewing uh, just outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. And then, you know. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Had some really good beers. But then they ran into some money problems. And, you know, things around the late 90s got a little tight. And he got out of it. And then, you know, he kind of wanted to get back into it. And he thought session beer was the way to go. They now have a, I mean, they were doing uh, contract gypsy, whatever the, you know, the, the term of the week is. Um, but they have their own brick and mortar place, uh, a brewery pub now in Salem, right on the water. And they do any damn thing they want. I mean, the, one of their big sellers is a, a 4% pills that, and you know, I mean, the big selling point in it, it's not a good session pills. It's good pills. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's really the way to try and sell these things too. I mean, don't, don't necessarily push the fact that they're low alcohol because, right. you know, they're good beers. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like low alcohol is a great thing to have in there, but if it's not a good beer, that doesn't matter. Well, especially because, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the tendency is to want to drink these, what, as we always say, small beers in big glasses. Yeah, right. You know, if you don't want to drink a liter of it, you kind of missed the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. No, well, I, I do think it's funny that going way back, you were talking about uh, the value proposition of session beers. Uh, you know, and kind of getting that through drinkers' heads. Uh-huh. And to me, it's it's one of these things where, like, even if you are going on that size art argument, you know, like, hey, have a liter of this session beer. You know, the truth is that with a session beer, you can have that liter and still be hanging out with your friends. And it's not like the sort of constant round the clock, you know, go off and get another pint or go, uh, God forbid, go get another eight ounce snifter of, you know, something Uber special. So there is something to be said, even if the session beer in a leader is kind of starting to miss some of the point of session beer, it at least allows you to stick around and talk with people yeah. and not have to constantly well, the do the thing, bar shuffle. I mean, one of the things I like is, well, like I said, the, the whole idea with the, with yards brewing, having the brawler festival, I like the idea of every now and then not having to think about what my next beer is going to be. Yeah, right. I mean, I realize this whole thing was originally about variety, but, you know, I spent some time in Dusseldorf and Cologne over the summer. That was really nice, not having to think at all. I mean, not even having to order, (laughs) you know? Because there's only one choice. It's like, oh, my beer's... Oh, no, it's not. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely see that because uh, there's a, a lot of times you can just walk into a place and be overwhelmed by the yeah. selection, you know, and and not only do you not know what to try, you want to try everything, and you know yeah. you can't. Yeah. At least I can't. Well, that's what I mean. You know, Victory's running something like, and I I'm, I mean, I hate to stop, keep dropping the same damn names over and over. Uh, let's, uh, let's say Sly Fox. <laughs> you know, I walk in there and they're running like 20 taps. I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll get the, I'll get their stout, the O'Reilly stout, which uh, is either four O or under four. I'll get one of those just while I'm thinking. Yeah. Right. You know, well, nothing like having a beer to help you think. Yeah. 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 I'm going to have a beer while I order a beer. But, <laughs> I, I agree though. I mean, it's like, you know, when I go into a place and I start looking at the beer menu, I tend to look at the ones that are lower in alcohol, uh, at least first, you know? Yeah. Um, and at least part of that is due to the fact that I live 35 miles away from the nearest place I can get a beer. And so <laughs> I have to be a little careful about getting home. Yep. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. I, we uh, well, we were and, talking before the show started about I just my wife and I got a place in upstate Pennsylvania, uh, a weekend home that's probably going to be our retirement place. It's a block from a brew pub. It's a whole new experience for me. Wow. You know, I don't have to worry about anything. I just go down and have whatever I want and walk home. It's, <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, I've been a, a suburban guy most yeah. of my life. Right. If I want to drink, I'm either going to the refrigerator or getting in the car. And it's just, you know, it's really relaxing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I do, uh, I do yeah. miss that as much as I love living where I do. That would yeah. be a, a really nice thing to be able to do. Yeah, but you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I live. I mean, I've been in the city since, uh, or I should say, I've been in a city since '92 when I was living in Boston, and now, of course, I live in LA, and I miss being in Boston and being able to sure. take the tea or walk to the pub. And when I bought my house that I have now, I got very, very lucky because nine blocks away from me, a very short walk, they opened up a British pub with a Belgian beer focus. <laughs> uh, and it's one of my favorite places. Is this Lucky Baldwin's you're talking about? It is Lucky Baldwin's Trappist Cafe. Oh, I've been lucky enough to go there too, man. What a, what a great place. A, a little neighborhood spot with amazing beer and food. Nice. Yeah. It's, a, it's like you walk in there and it's like, Okay, do I have a Young's? Do I have a Saison DuPont? Do I have a Plenty of the Elder? Uh, choices, choices, choices. But even still, when I'm all the way over there, even though they have a great selection of like 12% uh, Belgian ales on tap, I'll still take uh, take a look at least for the first couple of beers to kind of go, you know, I'll have three beers while I'm here. Let's have the first two be of reasonable strength, and then I'll have a closer. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, I, the other thing I hear, well, the other thing, one of the other things I hear, among the many things I hear <laughs> when people talk about session beer, uh, is the whole idea that, oh, well, you know, where we are, 6% is session beer for us. Right. I'm like, oh, come on. You know, that's nice, but <laughs> and I'm glad for you, but I'll tell you what, how about we play cards for money and you drink your beer and I'll drink mine. Yeah. Right. You know, well, and, I, and then, you know, and then there's the, the whole macho thing about, well, yeah. you know, I, I can drink like eight pints of a 12% beer. It's like, why do I care? <laughs> right. Well, well, now, so let me ask we we are coming up on session beer, uh, 2017, which is April 7th. And that's, yep. uh, and uh, remind me again, that's in celebration of what, Repeal? April 7th was um, the, uh, um, not repeal of prohibition, the, uh, they changed the uh, Volstead Act to allow 3-2 uh, beer to be legal. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it was little prohibition ending. Um, yes. Little repeal. And so, uh, what's on tap for Session Beer uh, this year? <laughs> what, you mean organized? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> at this point, not I, a lot. Um, I, I, I look just I, because you uh, did I'll the first one on a win. Uh, renovating that weekend home has pretty much eaten up a lot of my free time. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and the other thing is, it's almost. I mean, I think if I just talk about it, you know, it's almost like the kids ready to be pushed out the door. Right. Um, I go most places anymore, and I see stuff. That, I mean, at least under five, and usually under four and a half. Session IPA, for whatever that's worth, has taken hold. Yeah, I just accidentally made Session IPA because I had a screwed-up brew day. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the hey, next that's, episode. 
That's right. That's that's how life goes. But yeah, you're right. I do see a lot more low alcohol beers as compared to like say you know six eight years ago when everything was just huge and you couldn't even find anything under six percent. Yeah, honestly, it's almost like um, you know I, I don't know IPA day has kind of lost its luster because every day is. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm not saying that I'm not being, you know, get off my lawn or anything. It's just, it's the truth. Yeah, no, I... I mean, I drink IPAs, too, for God's sake. Yeah, and it's still it's still my favorite style. I mean, yeah. so, so pretty much every day here at my house is IPA day, but that doesn't mean that I don't like to drink something else when I go out. Well, yeah, it was my favorite style until last night when I cracked open that bottle of Schlenkerle. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't anymore. Oh, it was, really? I'm like, Ralph beer is my favorite style ever. That Man, that is one that I just have never been able to oh. develop a taste for. Oh, my God. I want to take a knife and fork to it. I love that beer. <laughs> yeah. you, you know what my favorite beer uh, beer style is? What? It's very simple. Saison? No. The one in front of me. There you oh, go. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, a friend of mine always used to say, the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that right. Works too. The one in front of you could be uh, could be empty. So, Drew, anything else we need to say here? Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask real quick. So, Lou, now that we're uh, coming up on Session Beer Day, and we do see this sort of development happening where uh, Session beers are available both in the soured and non soured, and traditional and non traditional format. Yeah. Are there any other Are there any other hopes of development that you want to see brewers tackle? Uh, in terms of session beer or in terms of encouragement to the drinkers or hell, anything you want the drinkers uh, to do. You know, my, my one concern about the whole thing and my one disappointment is that instead of trying to push things lower and get more flavor into less alcohol, unfortunately it's going the other way. And you know, what brewers are doing is trying to like push the upper limit of session. They're like, ah, oh, this 5.1 is really a session beer. Well, <laughs> You know what's the point, right? Yeah, why? You, know, you haven't shown me anything. Yeah, why? Why call it a session beer? I mean, we there are lots of like five to five and a half percent PLLs out there. What's the big deal about making this five point one and calling it a big session beer? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, I I hate to be, but that's the kind of jackass I am. I I mean, I'm <laughs> I want to start policing this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to see it just lose its. Um, because I think, I, you know, I, it, I am of the opinion that, quote, craft beer has lost a lot of its, um, I don't know, a lot of its meaning. It's been a, a term that has been diluted. Oh, um, and I think, to a certain extent, IPA has been diluted because, I mean, well, Session IPA does it, if nothing else. Right, right. Um, and I'd really, I, I mean, I think Session is a useful term, uh, indicating a beer that is, of significantly lower alcohol, and I'd, I'd hate to see it just become something people put on labels to sell a beer. Yeah, well, and yeah, what we were talking about the whole craft beer thing uh, earlier on this show in terms of uh, Walmart carrying their craft beer now and the guy who's suing them. Yeah. You know, it's like that just proves how meaningless that label really is. It really has become so, I'm afraid. Yeah, right. So, And, and you know, I mean, I've been, you know, I... I uh, I, I walk in the whiskey world as well. That's what I've been telling small distillers. I'm like, you know what? Don't even use it. Yeah, exactly. Just walk away from it. Yeah, yeah. Just say, you know, uh, we make really good stuff and we do it with integrity. And here, you decide from there. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. So. <laughs> you know, 
And if you need anything, go with local because it sure looks like local is becoming more powerful than craft in today's beer market. Yeah, man, there there are so many local breweries opening up, and that to me is is what it's really all about. You know, kind of like organic food versus local food. Uh, yeah, you know, lo- local is always going to be the way to go, no matter what. Yeah, I think people even get sustainable more than they get organic. Yeah, that's at true. least they think they know it's sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Well, so now, so now it sounds like we're going to have to have, uh, in addition to session beer day, we're going to have to have a local sustainable beer day. Ooh, well, that's not a bad idea, you know. Yeah, uh, might as well jump on the bandwagon now, baby. Let's get <laughs> okay, Let's do it. okay. The, the the three of us thought of it here first. Uh, and while we're at it, right, we'll get point, on, get be on high, uh, legal zoom and, and trademark that sucker. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll let Drew take care of that. That's uh, <laughs> that's his <laughs> bailiwick. Yeah, so I'll, I'll the, get right uh, on it. The website uh, for the Session Beer Project is sessionbeerproject.blogspot.com, correct? That's correct. All right. I, I guess I better put a blog post up. <laughs> I guess you better. I guess I better. <laughs> we're, we're, we, now, we now have told 35,000 people to go there and check yeah. it out, so you better yeah. do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe, Lou, if you need to, you can hire a writer somewhere. They can write the blog post for you. You know, I know the writing's hard. <laughs> yeah, Drew always has extra time if you need to hire one you know (laughs) (laughs) all right lou bryson thank you so much for joining us again to talk about uh the session beer project it's always a pleasure to chat with you always a pleasure good time guys all right man thanks a lot we'll talk to you soon take care all right bye-bye bye-bye all right and hey while we're getting rid of lou on the phone don't forget that coming up as we're publishing this episode, we are also looking for your session beer recipes. So if you have a session beer recipe that you love to do, uh, drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. That's right. That's the beer hotline. So let's get those session beer recipes in. Let's make sure that everybody enjoys session beer day this year on April 7th. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we'll have Drew talking to Susan Rood of Prairie Rose Meadery in Fargo, North Dakota. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer? Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer All right, beer. and now that we're done with good old Lou and talking about session beer, why don't we go to another, well, you know, another way to drink, you know? A non-sessionable drink. Why don't we go to back to Fargo, where we were last episode? Uh, this time, we're sitting down with, well, really, a good friend of both of ours, uh, Susan Rude, who has been on 
the AHA governing committee for a long time now, and also has done a boatload of work with the BJCP over the years, uh, and is you know the owner and proprietor and the uh, brewer or vintner really of Prairie Rose Meadery uh, there in Fargo. And we sat down in her lovely little tasting room that is very much kind of like you know somebody's little cottage, and enjoyed her meads and talked about mead making on a commercial scale and where things have developed over time. Uh, both in the home hobby and in the commercial industry. So why don't you sit back and come have a glass of honey water with me. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, brewers and meatsters alike. We have a slightly different uh, sort of profile that we're doing uh, today. Uh, I'm not at a brewery. I'm here at Prairie Rose Meadery in Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm sitting here with my good friend Susan Rood. Mm -hmm. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. So, hey, Introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, uh, tell them who you are and why they should know who you is. Um, uh, my name is Susan Rood, obviously. Uh, I've been uh, uh, one of your governing committee um, representatives for, oh, geez, since about 2000 with one year off in there somewhere. So for quite a while. Um, uh, I've been on the BJCP um, as the assistant exam director for quite a few years. I, I quit that uh, a couple of years ago to open my own meadery, Prairie Rose Meadery. Um, well, and, and, we're, and home brewing for a little over 20 years. There you go. And, and we are currently sitting in Prairie Rose's tasting room, which is very homey, very uh, very different aesthetic than I think I normally think of like with a tasting room. Well, just tried to make it feel like it, it, we're we're themed on North Dakota. Prairie Rose, the Prairie Rose flower is our uh, state flower. So I just thought of what kinds of things fit North Dakota. When you think of North Dakota, you think of little farmsteads and your grandmother's living room. So that's kind of what I set this up as. Well, yeah, and we, and we have the cabinets and the plates and yeah. and flowers everywhere. So yeah. yeah. You, you've definitely succeeded. Okay. It does feel very warm, and even even your tables here have the. I'm assuming this is the, the prairie, prairie rose. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's kick it off with my favorite question, or one of my favorite questions. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word. Crap. Crap. <laughs> I say that a lot. I'm, try, uh, I'm trying to. <laughs> I think we have to have a debate as to whether or not crap is actually a curse word. <laughs> Well, okay, we'll let it fly. For Occasionally, now. I say the F one, but my mother yells at me. Susan is way too way too polite uh, to to actually curse at us. All right, so uh, let's talk your biography. We talked, you covered a, a little bit, but how did you get into the world of home brewing and home mead making? Um, well, I got into home brewing itself, uh, sitting at work talking to two other. Uh, people I worked with that homebrewed and they would talk about it and I'd think I like beer I could do this um, and I just started out and then they of course brought mead to an event that I was at and instantly fell in love with it and it's been all downhill or uphill or however you say since <laughs> around the corner and everything yeah. else yeah all right and then so you said the, how long ago the 20 years ago yeah that was in the mid 90s. <laughs> And I started, made my first, uh, which I started out making mead in, on October 12th, 1996. Well, gee. <laughs> so, I, I just I, over 20 years ago. 
Now, why do you why do you know the date so well? Uh, it's my uh, parents' an- wedding anniversary, and the couple that we made mead with. It was their anniversary. Right, so we have a, we have a nice little fixture in, yeah. in time. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. I think I was I just moved to LA two months prior to yeah. to that day when you started brewing. All right. God, that seems like a long time ago. It was. Hey. Yeah, um, no, that was yesterday. Right, Seems okay. like it. It's, it's sometimes, right? There, there are times when you're like, what are you talking about? That was 10 years ago. That's impossible. That was 10 years ago. Ooh, it was. Uh, other times, it, what do you mean that was two weeks ago? It seems like forever ago. All right. Um, and then so we got into meat making. Now, at some point, you got into the BJCP as well. Yep. Uh, I think I took uh, my first BJCP exam in uh, 1997. So I just dived in and was like, well. And when I start something, I go nuts. <laughs> Like, that, you're just all in. <laughs> that never happens with home brewers or home brewers. No, not at all. No. So, yeah, kind of over the top. And I just, and then it, it just bugged me that anybody would be higher ranked than me. So I had to keep taking that exam. So well, that's I, now at Grandmaster 3. I was going to say, yeah, Jim 3. I don't think anybody's ever going to catch Gordon. but you know. No, that, that would be an impossibility. Because I think Gordon is an excessively extreme point hog. <laughs> well, and I think he's also driven by that same impulse. Nobody's yeah. going to be ranked higher than me. Yep. But meanwhile, I'm I'm sitting back here as a, a lowly little national judge, oh, and yeah. do, doing my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty good. National yeah. is a good. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take national. My my problem is as a computer programmer, I can't write fast enough to do the exam. It's tough. If somebody if somebody could give me the exam with a keyboard, yeah. I'd I'd kill it in a half heartbeat, but. The rules are rules. So now, but you didn't just become a judge. You went up into the administration ranks, and you really kind of helped shape a lot of the stuff with the BJSP. Yeah. Well, I I don't say if I shaped. I I did a lot of the. I would when anybody. I was assistant exam director, which really is glorified secretary. Uh, I mailed out all of the exam results, collected them, you know, put them in, sent people their pins, their certificates, um, a lot of that stuff. Uh, it, it took two or three people to replace me, though, when, when I quit. Oh, there you go. <laughs> You're obviously very efficient. Yeah, well, yeah. And I, I don't know about that. I just had nothing else to do, apparently. Well, I, I don't think we can say that anymore, <laughs> can we? Um, <laughs> all right, and then um, now also recently, I know the BJSP now has a meat certification. Yep. Yeah, uh, and I did help I did help write the, the exam on that and... Did some of the questions for the for that exam? How, how long of a process was that? Because I know I, it felt like it was took us a years. couple of years or more to go through. Because we 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 had meetings where okay, just send in all of your questions, and then we had to review all the questions. They had to decide, then they had to be put into the right format of, of how you would put them on the exam. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a, it was an interesting process. And now, obviously, I think what you have the mead certification. If if somebody if somebody wanted to get the mead certification, and again, the focus is the idea of like, you know, look, mead is different enough from beer yeah. that we kind of want to be able to say, hey, no, I really know my my stuff mm-hmm. about mead. So there's a separate mead exam. Yep, now. there is a, a separate uh, mead endorsement. If yep. you are if you're already a BJCP. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
then it's a mead endorsement, um, or you can just become a complete mead judge without doing any beer if your focus is truly on mead. Um, but right now they just take, I mean, you, you do all of the written part of the, which used to be the written part of the mead exam is all done online now. And so you just have to, you do that, you pass that, then you take a six mead tasting thing, taste off and... No, write do, all the stuff about it. No, does it work like the regular BJCP entrance exam now, where the mm-hmm. online portion gets you yeah. sort of a provisional status? Yeah, and then yeah. you have a certain period of time to get a tasting window. Taste, yeah, and so then you you really have to kind of hunt out where either hunt out or plan a session. Yeah, to to get a tasting thing, yep. so you can get it stamped, certified according to Hoyle. Yeah. You're approved by Susan as a meat judge. It's like everything else, though. <laughs> you want you want that certification, you got to go for it. So when did you first discover, well, okay, let's ask the, the first one. When did you first discover good beer? Um, at about 95, 1995. Now, I, I really didn't know a lot of beer. Yes, through my coworkers. <laughs> I, I truly hated beer before that. I, I and still to this day I'm not fond of pilsners of any kind. <laughs> and so if you don't care, you know, even the more multi, you know, German and they're not my style of beer. I need something with some of the, you know, the caramel malts mm. and the, you know, amber yeah, and melanoid melanoidin malts are, are where I really love. Um, so you're if we're in the world of lagers, you're more of a Bach person than Yes, a- definitely a Bach person uh in the English style, I love the English styles, the bitters and stuff. Um, I love the uh, I love the Belgians that mm-hmm. type of beers. But you go the light pilsners, and then you go to the stouts. Nope, <laughs> give me everything in between. <laughs> if, if it's red or brown, she's happy. Yeah, um, and then um, with the mead, uh, was the mead was that same discovery via your coworkers? Yes. Yep. They, they, one of our friends uh, made mead, and I, I tasted it, and both my husband and I, we, we just fell in love with it. Um, yeah, that was instant. And so that's how we got into home brewing was because, well, we, we really liked the mead, so for Christmas we decided we'll buy each other uh, kettles and stuff so we can, and at that time you actually heated the mm-hmm. meal honey and uh, back far enough they didn't know you could just do that without any heat so we we bought all the kettles to do that and then of course i went crazy and started making beer also and it's just yeah well so and i think i think honestly that you're the first person i've ever talked to who's gotten into the beer making thing via the other yeah yeah, usually it seems like meat become meat and cider become like an Accessory to the beer thing. Yeah, no, I tasted the second. Really, the second I tasted it, it's been an extreme love ever since. Well, so yeah, let's talk a little bit that that mead history because you alluded to some of it. Yeah, you know, like when you first started, I mean, there was a lot of like. I think I tell people if you look at the old mead text, it's like. Yeah. Bring your honey to a boil, you know, yep. cool it down, pitch the yeast, and then squeeze yeah. in a lemon and a strong some, cup of tea. Or throw some raisins in <laughs> there. and Yeah. Um, yeah, way back. Um, well, I didn't really start out to that point where you throw in the lemon and the raisins. I actually did have some nutrients that I added. The diammonium phosphate mm-hmm. and yeast energizer were available. Uh, but we did bring our, we pasteurized it, brought it up to that 185 and skimmed all the scum off and did all that and chilled it down and added the nutrients and yeast and, and then sat there and waited for 
a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, and my 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 theory on that was, okay, I can't wait any longer. I can't. Well, screw this. I am just going to make twenty batches at once, so I will never run out again. <laughs> I find that with mead makers, yeah. the people who get serious about it, suddenly it's like. I just spent a thousand dollars on honey because, I, yep. damn it, I'm not being out of mead. Yeah, that was about it. It was like, uh, yeah, I, I made one batch and we we drank it. It's like, well, what do you mean? It's almost already gone and we have no more. And so I, I just I had my entire course. See, I have the advantage too, is I am the wife of the house, and my my wife doesn't yell at me for messing up the kitchen and the living room and the dining room. The kitchen so, is my domain. So. Yeah, so I just lined my entire kitchen and dining room, had carboys everywhere, and it's like, well, this is you know, Bob was fine with that. So, well, there you go. Uh, well, uh, how many how many batches do you think you had going at your maximum at home? Mm, Twenty twenty five. Uh, like 25 uh, five gallon batches yeah five to six, six mostly six gallon now how and would then, you how would you keep track of you just put a little tape on the, on each one and label them and then just take notes on the tape or well I had a log book uh, okay uh, so the, the, there's the yeah. mysterious book uh, yeah. Denny has one of those too yeah I don't I have a computer file I have a few of those too but now I've switched computers and I can't find half the, so it's like I wish I'd wrote all this down. <laughs> all right. Well, so since you alluded to the fact that things have changed, right? Yeah. I mean, we've seen things like staggered nutrient additions yep. and all that. Uh, I mean, because I know, like, for me, one of the big mind-blowing moments in terms of mead making was uh, when Kurt gave that mead panel yeah. in St. Paul a couple of years back. Yeah. And they poured all those meads. And they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, we made all these three months ago or yeah. whatever it was. It's and, probably six weeks. Yeah, and and they were phenomenal, and it just kind of made me go, "Holy crap, really?" Because again, I was like, I was in that world of thought of like, "Oh, look, if you're going to make mead, you got to go put it down in a corner somewhere and forget about it for a while and come back to it." And ta-da! Like I had a mead that I lost for nine years. Oh, nice! I bet that was great mead, though. <laughs> it was, and then I poured it. I accidentally brought it to a part. Well. I brought it to a party. I accidentally forgot to untap it, and we, they drained all of it within three hours. But so now, describe the changes you've seen in mead making, and like how you actually make mead today. Yeah. Start at the homebrew level, and then we'll talk about what you do here. Yeah. Well, like I said in the homebrew level, we would always you know the heat and and put it, and you just store it there for. And and I always did that heat and did a, a primary. We we would heat everything, uh, bring it up to. About 185, skim all the scum, uh, chill it all down, add uh, diammonium phosphate, yeast energizer, uh, let it sit. Oh, and pectic enzyme and grape tannin. Remember adding all of that stuff. Uh, and we did it all up front. Pre-fermentation. Yes, and, and pre-fermentation. And with the yeast nutrients, no staggering? Or... Nope, it was all added all at once. Uh, you threw in your yeast, which was generally like uh, a fleur sherry. That's where mm-hmm. I started, with a sherry yeast. Yep. Uh, sometimes, we, you know, the first few I did, I used Montrachet or Cote de Blanc wine yeast. Um, I still like things, Cote de Blanc. Yeah, I do, I do like it, but um, not as good on mead, though, as... As the, some of the yep. new ones we know about now, um, so we'd do that, and then you'd sit it there, let it sit for 
two or three months, and and as soon as it looked like it was slowing down, you'd transfer it, kind of almost done, transfer it to a new carboys uh, off the and leave a little bit of yeast in, throw in some fruit or throw in spice or you whatever. Got, you got to rack it multiple times so that yeah. you know, like get it off the cake. Yeah. And- well, I would just do the one time, transfer it in, add the fruit, but then it, you let it sit there. And and the key was when the fruit sank. It was ready to pull off the fruit. So, but that was usually six to nine months. <laughs> it's what? like, and I always thought this you'd wait and you'd wait and you'd wait. I always thought the scary one was that the people would say, "No, no, you got to let let the fruit sit until it bleaches." And, and some you, of that, yeah. And you get like the albino raspberries, it and it's like, yep, you get it really, yeah. I, and I think back, you know, what I know now is like you're getting all leeching all these kind of off flavors though that then have to age out and um, and we didn't you know we just let it ferment at whatever temp it was if it was summer it was probably mm-hmm. seventy five eighty in the house if it was winter it might be sixty five seventy because yeah we're in North Dakota <laughs> so we can have it a little cooler in the winter um, so you might you know might get some of those hot alcohols which took you know nine Time. months to or more to age. So you'd just sit it there, and and then you'd bottle it. Yeah. Never worried about splashing anything. So you got all of these nice sherry characters because they well, got you, oxidized. Well, you're already I, in the sherry yeast floor yeah. anyway, so. Yeah, and so, yeah. And so now, you know, nowadays, you, you don't do that. You, you mix all the honey with uh, slightly warm water just so that the honey mix is easier like maybe 100 100 degrees at the most let it you know and by the time you're done mixing the honey in it's down there where it's cool enough to pitch your yeast you throw in staggered nutrients so a fourth of your nutrients all at once which is usually um like i use fermado and um diammonium phosphate kind of a blend so now this is one of the things that's interesting to me about the whole uh, staggered nutrient addition thing yeah. is everybody seems to have a slightly different schedule yeah right? so you, like, you, like you, you said quarter I think Ken yeah. Tram who I I, I I think at least what I've adopted mm-hmm. and I think it's Ken Tram yeah. is an eighth mm. yeah every twelve okay no I do it I do it you every, do it once a day once a day yeah. well Technically, it's once a day for the first three days. Not well, and you use the go firm. Mm-hmm. So, go firm initially, right with the yeast. Nothing. Well, more. and that's to rehydrate the dry yeah, yeast. Yeah, but the- then no nutrients for 24 hours because the go firm has some nutrients. So then at 24, 48, 72 hours, I'll do those, and then I add the last one at about a third, between a third and a half of mm-hmm. fermentation. So I'll I'll check the gravity. And so now doing that at a at a homebrew level uh, now allows you to turn around meats much faster. Oh yeah. And so we were we were talking earlier six weeks, eight mm-hmm. weeks, and that has always led me to the big question. Now I mean obviously thinking of meat in the traditional way of how everybody thought about meat, I could never understand how anybody was going to make a commercial meatery work. It's the same here. I do right. the same uh, schedule. I, I I can have my traditional meat done in two weeks. Yeah. And so and, and and so that suddenly starts to make it make much more commercial mm-hmm. sense, right? Because yeah. it's always, you know, like looking at that like going, how how are you going to stockpile a product for six months to a year before you can sell it? You know, I mean, yeah. That's, I, and that's how they did start the first meteries. They they waited. Like Redstone and yeah, Redstone, White Winter. They were 
six months of waiting on their meads. Um, yeah, that's, that's tough. Yeah. But I suppose you just make enough, and then when you start, you just keep making. So now, obviously, we've had the craft beer renaissance, and it seems like in the past couple of years, suddenly now we're starting to get people, you know, uh, some of it's a confluence of gluten-free concerns, mm-hmm. and some of it's, you know, people looking for the next big thing. Yep. We're seeing that rise in cider, but now also we're seeing a rise in mead because now I think we have a couple of, a couple of folks out there, you know, like Michael with Moonlight, who... Yeah. Yeah, are really pushing an yeah, evangelizing and idea. And I know there's like now a National Meat Association and yep. American Meat Makers Association. That's right, the American Meat Makers Association. Um, so you're the only meadery in town. I think yeah. like you're the like really the only meadery in this in this whole area. In North Dakota, yeah. Um, there's another winery out by Bismarck that makes three meads. Uh, they also, I think, make some other wines, but they call themselves a winery more than a meadery. Um, other than that, I think one is opening by Brookings, South Dakota. Not They aren't open yet. Uh, the next closest uh, wine haven in Minneapolis makes some meads. Uh, White Winter Winery is one that just focuses totally on mead also. I, I think he makes some ciders, though, mm-hmm. also. And then, uh, so that's in Wisconsin, right up near Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin. They're up there. Um, and then there's one in uh, central Montana. Those are our closest. See, you know, <laughs> here's, the, here's the one thing I, uh, I've been trying to figure out, because I know every time we have a homebrewers conference up in the upper Midwest, so yeah. in, in Minneapolis and whatnot, that there's always going to be a hell of a lot of really good mead. Yeah. And I don't see it anywhere else that we go in the country, even though the homebrewers have a tendency, like, this, oh, look, I made mead. But for some strange reason, there's this pocket up here. That just it, loves mead. Yeah, in the, in the upper Midwest, <laughs> and it's the mead corridor, and I don't know if it's like the Scandinavian thing. Or, Could be. I mean, or, there is uh, some ancestry there to... Right between the Scandinavian, the other Swedish, the Vikings, and the, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, some of that. But I just think we got lucky early on and figured out how to make good mead. And once you've had good mead, then good mead, you, you just want to make more and more of it. So if you start out tasting and the first meads you've tasted are these really hot, nasty meads that um, people were making quite a few years ago, you tend to maybe avoid it. Um, and then a lot of places have never heard of mead. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, once you've heard of mead, you've tried mead a little bit, then all of a sudden, oh, this is really good, and then you you want to make your own. So you think the upper Midwest here just had kind of a nice synergistic snowball effect? Yeah. You, we, got, you, got, just, you got lucky with a good nucleus, and then it just went yeah, bleesh. I think so. So, um So yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the meadery itself here. Like, how, how much meat are you making? Right we may, when we make it, we'll make a 400 gallon batch. Um, we and probably made 20, last year we probably made 2,500 gallons, 24. And then, and then you, you start with the traditional. Yes. And then are, are all your other meads basically based off the traditional? Or for, the, for the, yeah, for the most <laughs> part, um, we've made all of them, we'll take and split that three ways then. So I'll do a 400 gallon batch, I'll split it and add. My fruit or spice to let it either from add. I'll add fruit earlier in the fermentation. The spice I'll wait till the end, um, till it's totally done fermenting, 
things like that. And then uh, some other ones, though, we made some reserve ones where we started higher higher mm-hmm. gravity. So those are done similarly, but a little bit different. Uh, well, that, it, so we'll get we'll get uh, about 130 to 140 gallons of each one at a time. And then what you're normally selling in 375s? Uh, no, uh, we we were at 750s. We're we're actually phasing those out to to go to the 500 mil bottles. Okay. Um, although our traditional will leave it, I think, just our basic at 750s. Now, is part of that move? Just like also to you know adjust the price point or so, some of its price point, some of its you know you open a bottle of mead and two people can drink a five hundred mil bottle easily. You always end up with that little bit left, uh, and and it does keep in the fridge very yep. well. I I'll bring a bottle home and drink it, and probably last me a week or you know or even I've had some in the fridge for three four weeks. Mm-hmm. Doesn't change like wine. Yeah, wine kind of gets dull after a few days in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Well, because I mean, I mean, honey has all those nice antioxidant right. characteristics, and it just hangs on there. It keeps really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I, some of it is the price point because you know honey is expensive. I think our our seven fifties, uh, a lot of them are running twenty seven, twenty eight mm-hmm. bucks a bottle. Uh, so if we can put that into a five hundred, you're under that twenty dollar range. Yeah, you, you'll get people to be more yeah. willing to experiment to, yeah. to reach out for it. Well, let's let's talk about the the flight that you set up for me because okay. we, we're starting here with the traditional. Yep. Uh, what sort of honey is in this? It's they're all clover honey, right. uh, North Dakota clover honey, um, which people are cringing out there saying clover honey. I don't know. That's just boring, but. Uh, if you have a true field of just clover honey, uh, which we have here, we have miles and miles of clover mm-hmm. grown in North Dakota. Uh, so you're getting all clover. It's a nice spicy, uh, if you notice, uh, a little hints of spice, a little bit of cinnamon notes in there. Uh, it actually, to me, um, it borders right up there with Tupelo on that spiciness. Well, I was going to say, it's like a milder, more herbaceous Tupelo. Yeah. Um, and for the listeners, if, you, if you've if you never had Tupelo honey, uh, Tupelo honey is a honey that you can only really get in pure quantities from North Florida and Southern Georgia and the swamps of the area. And it is awesome stuff. And it you take it, put it on a toothpick, put it in your mouth, and it tastes like a combination of cinnamon, cloves, and caramel yep. without anything else that you've added to it's it. It's just light and refreshing. And- yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, what I get here, I mean, I get some of those spice notes, I get some of the caramel notes, but what I really get underlying is, like, this really sort of pleasant, mellow, herbal character. Yep. It's just kind of like, yep. you know, just kind of chills everything out and softens the spice. Yep. All right, and then, so then from there, the other three meads are all based on the same yes. base, right? Yes, so, the base of the, all of those meads is the same. Okay, exactly. and, so, and then we move up into one of my favorite flavors in the universe, which is uh, ginger. Ah. I, I, I made uh, years ago when I first, I think actually the first mead I ever made was uh, Charlie P's uh, ginger mead that's in one of the books. Mm, and, okay. you know, in 750s with a crown cap on it and super sparkling ginger mead, yes. and me being me, I went, well, that sounds like a good amount of ginger, but I'm going to double it. Ah, I made it basically a ginger bomb. It took like six years before it was like, oh. you know, before you get to it. Um, and here you've got 
you have the the heat that you get out of ginger. You got that spice that you get out of ginger, but you also have those real strong background notes of the floral aspects of the ginger. Yeah, you know, where you get that little bit of sweetness, but it, but still just kind of like like really as if you're at a ginger plant. Yeah, yeah, and even with all that ginger in the in the nose, yeah, and I mean there's a there is a strong note of ginger throughout the whole thing. What you're not getting is, like my ginger bean that I talked about, you're not getting that big, hot ginger burn yeah, that's, no. that, that's keeping you from being able to get to it. Right. I, I try to avoid that a lot. Um, I add a lot of ginger up front, and it only, I mean, and it's all peeled, so there's a lot of labor of love in this, because it, it, uh, each batch is about five hours of peeling. Well, excuse me. <laughs> Well, and that seems to be the case with a lot of uh, a lot of your uh, recipes because yeah. I know that I, I, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But there was a, you had a Facebook post, uh, uh, the pineapple chipotle. Yeah, yeah. Where it was like, yep, yeah, no, this is a lot of work. Roasted and grilled all the pineapples that went in there. Um, we had a, we well, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of friends that love to come over and help out and. Well, and uh, share some mead while they're doing it. I was going to say, yeah, there's usually yeah. a liquid encouragement. Yes. Um, so they'll come and they, they help me uh, cut all the, chop, or, you know, peel all the pineapples and chop them into, slice them into slices and grill them on the grill. And mm-hmm. so that was. Well, and, that, and, and I skipped ahead to that one since we're talking about it. But yeah, I mean, you've got obviously a really wonderful, bright pineapple, char- pineapple character. And you got. Yeah those caramel tones yeah you know, a little bit of that kind of pineapple upside down cake type thing going on and then yeah right behind it is that smoky chipotle. yeah chipotle thing not burning just no. it's there as no, an earth there's note. just a hint and there's just a hint of heat at the end yep not, and, uh, and it's nice because it plays off against the sweetness and the acidity from the pineapple and also the sweetness of the honey yeah. and kind of pulls it together and lets you kind of get, get into the next glass well, and that's my goal on every one of my meads. I want them so you're going to taste the honey, you're going to taste the fruit, the spice, all in balance. So you're not going to get like on the ginger. You're not going to get just ginger. You're getting ginger in the aroma and a little bit of honey still in the aroma. You're getting the honey and the ginger blended. Um, it, it, it's a little more soft, but. Um, I want balance because I want to be able. The, the thing I love about meat is honey. I mean, it's made out of honey, so I want to have that nice honey flavor coming through on all of them. Yet I want it to showcase whatever spice or whatever fruit is there. Um, and, and by the way, dear listeners, uh, when Susan said the word balance, yes, you probably heard my eyebrow cock, uh, but we'll get there in a moment. Um, <laughs> All right, and then the last one that you poured for me, uh, you poured uh, your uh, orange spice. Nice, yep. And you said blood orange. It's a blood orange uh, concentrate is what I use. Uh, I, I was, was going to ask, how do you get blood oranges up here in North Carolina? Yeah, well, and that, that uh, definitely, you, you, I bought a concentrate. We do have some blood oranges at the grocery stores, um, but no, I, I just ordered a concentrate on that one. Well, and then, I mean, here you've got... This very lovely top note of you know the the spices that are on there, mm-hmm. but yeah, the the whole base note of the whole thing is that blood orange. Um, there are a couple of Italian uh, blood oranges are really Italian, 
Uh, there are a couple of Italian desserts that use blood orange that where they almost make like a blood orange pudding out of it. Mm, okay. And and it's that same sort of note that just comes along because blood orange juice, um, listeners, if you hadn't had it before, I mean, not only is it notoriously deeply weirdly purple uh, until you ferment it, in which case all the anthocyanins go away and you go, eh, I want it to be purple. Um, it's less acidic than the traditional oranges that we yeah. think of. Uh, and it's more earthy because, again, the anthocyanins, even if they're not rendering the color, anthocyanins register on our tongues as a kind of an earthy thing. The obvious example of that is think beets, which are chock full of them. So you get this sort of earthy pudding character with the citrus notes to it, and then the spice is riding over on top of it, so it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's amazing to think that all four of those all come out of that one batch. Yeah, three, three. Or sorry, yeah, the three, uh, three, three, the three, three additional three. variants out of the one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I said we have another a dozen. Are- yeah, I was gonna say uh, the, that's a nice <laughs> impressive list. I'd, I'd be like, hey, I want to go try them all, but then no, I'd be drunk. Um, now we'll get to the we'll get to the reason why I cocked my eyebrow when you said the word balance here. So omitting the word balance. Describe your meat-making philosophy. Uh, my meat-making philosophy would be to have the honey showcased with fruit or spice as a... Uh, accent? <laughs> accent. That's a good word. Yes, as an accent to it. Um, I, I want them to both be there. Uh, so you're going to taste the fruit. You're going to taste the spice. or uh, But you're still going to taste the honey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be lively on your tongue. Uh, which is uh, the liveliness more comes from your acid uh, and tannin well, blend. <laughs> all right, well, well, we'll get to those in a moment. But, uh, so, given that honey is uh, really the backbone mm-hmm. of this whole beverage, what are some things that you that you want people to be aware of about honey? You know, as they're going off and trying to make their own meats at home. Um. If the honey tastes good, it's going to make a good meat. If you're going to like the flavor of the honey, when you when you buy your honey, make sure you taste it. Uh, when you go to a farmer's market, taste it. Does it taste light? Does it taste refreshing? Or does it taste dull and old? Because you, you will get some. Or you'll get some that have um, you know some flowers in there that just make it a little duller, a little more, you know, like... Ones I, I kind of think of, and you know, people are going to hate me on this, but California orange blossom honey, mm-hmm. light, lively, all from California orange trees, uh, because there's miles and miles of just orange trees. There are indeed. Yeah, and they set the bees out in the middle of there, and they get all of their honey only from the orange trees. Uh, Florida orange blossom, on the other hand, and some people love it, uh, I don't care for it so much because what you're getting is a lot of these big flowers that are blooming at the same time and I can taste that and it it makes the orange blossom honey a little bit dull and muted to me yeah well I mean I'm I'm a Florida boy I mean that's where I was born and raised and I will tell you right now I think Florida orange blossom honey always has a more waxy characteristic to it yeah it's a little waxy a little it just comes across to me not as light and lively on the tongue. So now, is there um, 
Is there a particular honey that you haven't had a chance to work with or that you haven't had a chance to work with as much as you want to? Um, I've, I've made a little bit of Tupelo, but I would love to make a lot more Tupelo. Yeah, the uh, it's expensive. It's expensive to get. Hard to get. Uh, there's a black locust honey that I would love to make some out of, but again, that one is so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I've made a lot of stuff. Uh, oh, I, and I love the uh, oh, meadow foam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one the one I wish I could get more of, and of course it's always going to vary based on where you get it from. Was I had a uh, friend of mine give me uh, fifteen pounds of fireweed honey uh, from uh, from an area in Northern California just after a fire, and that was some of the most spectacularly pale honey I've ever seen. Yeah. And like sweet and light and jumpy right off the tongue. Yeah. And of course, that's all going to depend upon what's growing what in else? the scene. <laughs> yeah. And that's all of your honeys. Yeah. You know, um, there. That's where uh, I can't remember the name of her place, but it's in by uh, UC Davis. Mina um, Harris uh, has a business where she sells honey. And uh, she's a professor at UC Davis at the Enology Center there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can go in there and you can taste like 40 or 50 different honeys. And you would be just amazed at how many different honeys and how different every one of them tastes. It, it, that, was, that was so much fun. I would recommend if anybody's in that area, go do that. Um, or the other is just collect honeys from everywhere and do taste-offs. Well, and, and we'll find what you like. Well, and what I think is it uh, honey.com still runs their locator? Or, I think so. I think yeah. there is a honey locator. Yeah, and so it, Google, uh, Google the words honey locator, and you'll find like all these apiarists around the country yeah. who have all these various varieties, and yeah. we'll mark whether or not they ship and whether or not they have a website and yeah. where you can find it. And yeah, I mean, it's a fun yet expensive uh, sort of tasting hobby to get into. Yeah. But if you would just buy a little container, it's not so terribly expensive. I, I know, but who's going to buy a little container? You can buy a lot. I know. Um, now, uh, let's talk amount of honey in your meats. So, mm-hmm. like, for your traditional, if we're looking at, like, on, say, a five-gallon batch ratio, right, or a yeah. gallon batch, whatever whatever you have in your head. Like, it's gen- generally four to one. So Four to four pounds of honey to... One pound of water? No. Um, how would I do that? Uh, four gallon, four gallons of water to one gallon of honey. Okay. So three, three gallons to one gallon. So three. Oh, three gallons. One gallon. one out of four. Okay. And you can think a gallon of honey is about twelve pounds. Yes. So and a gallon of water is a pints pound of water around so eight. Yeah. So. Uh, and it, it kind of varies. It depends. I actually just go for about a one twenty five original gravity. It's going to switch with mm-hmm. every honey. Right. And then um, we talked the nutrient additions. Uh, we talked uh, some of your uh, favorite yeast strain. Uh, the Lovelin eleven twenty two B. Eleven twenty two B, which is a very popular choice. Oh. Uh, it gives off some kind of nice fruit to it, but doesn't mm-hmm. get too much in the way of everything. Right. Uh, and and then, it's, yeah, just a hard worker, too. There you go, which is important when you're running a commercial meter. Yeah. And then um, let's talk the uh, the acid and tannin part, because mm-hmm. I think this is a place where a lot of brewers fall down when they when they first try their hands at meat and cider, yeah. is a lot of brewers tend to think of, my beer is done when I have it in the fermenter, 
and I go to rack it over to the to the keg or the bottle. Yeah. Right, like uh, what, whatever's in the fermenter at the end of fermentation, that's it. It's done. It goes. It's done. Yeah. But with the world of winemaking and cider making and, and mead making is part of that. That's nowhere near the case, right? So, tell people what what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're looking for in order to pull your wines the um, way you want them. I do almost all of mine by flavor, so it's a little hard to explain. But when I taste it, I I just know. Okay, that's lively. That's refreshing. Um, sometimes you'll just taste them, and they're just kind of die on your tongue or whatever they don't hang around they're mm-hmm. just blah um then i would add some acid uh I, I actually the way i've got my system i really don't add any acids here occasionally i'll add a little bit of base to keep the um acids from getting too too acidic because um, usually when we talk about acid is in the wine world you'll hear people talk about whether or not wine is tight uh, or whether or not it's bright yeah. Right, and that brightness and tightness comes from amount of acid, yeah. and you know, and usually what like a citric acid, a malic acid, or tartaric acid, or you know, a blend of those. Yeah, is is what we use a lot in the in right. this world. And and yeah, you would use pretty much the. To me, I would use the tartaric, tartaric, or possibly some malic. Yeah, so the malic being apple, tartaric being grape, yeah. and then. Now, when you're talking about adding a base to sort of pull the the TA down, the tetrodible acidity. Yeah. What are you usually adding? Uh, potassium carbonate? Potassium Is that carbonate? Right? Bicarbonate. Potassium bicarbonate. Bicarbonate, yeah, there you go. Uh, and so you use that to kind of pull it back a little right. bit. Right. Well, as you're fermenting, your uh, yeast and, and high, whatever, it, they always produce more acid. Yep. And so if you let your, your pH basically drop way too low, it shuts down your yeast. So you're going to be letting it just happily ferment along and pretty soon, well, crap, it quit at 50. <laughs> because it, it's yeah. generally because the pH is too low. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I will bring it up just, but very carefully, because you can way overdo it easily. See, now that's interesting, because I think a lot of people will look at a stalled meat fermentation and say, oh, add some yeast nutrient. But you, uh, but you, you are pointing out that a lot of times, you have to if test it, every aspect and yeah, see if, if it's an acidity problem, which you yeah. think, you, which you see more often, because yeah. obviously you're dealing with your nutrients correctly. So if you're going to install out, for your case, it's more likely pH than, yeah. and so you need to bump your pH up a little bit. Yep. All right. So now let's talk tannin, or as I think, tannin is, to my mind, it is the hops of the wine world. Yeah. Um. I haven't actually ever added... I, I used to in homebrewing. I would add some tannins. Um, in my commercial meads, I have not added any tannins yet. Um, I do have one that's fermenting right now that I'm going to, I think, add uh, oak to as a tannin rather than the chemical tannin. And, and um, usually the, the, the tannin that you'll find in the homebrew market is powdered grape skins, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I used to use that when I was home brewing uh, quite often. In fact, I would I would throw that in at the beginning, um, and it always balanced out. I never ended up having anything that uh, wasn't. But there, you could end up you could probably hit a much higher acid because you had the tannin in. Um, I, I guess I just know here where my honey and fruit and everything is. You're going to land. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now. Um 
what, what what's the most unusual mead that you've made? Probably the pineapple chipotle. That that's my most complex one that I made. I have a, a star anise, which is mm-hmm. licorice, mm-hmm. Uh, that most people seem to find really odd, but it's I mean, that seems like yeah, it, it, it blend up with a couple of things. You got Christmas in a glass. Yeah, well, and it, it's like uh, a light ouzo, or you know, a lot of people say, well, it reminds me of Jägermeister, but it's drinkable. <laughs> Like yeah, it has that licorice flavor to it. But. I, don't, I, I don't get as drunk. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, what common wisdom uh, mead making practice do you think is overblown? Hmm. I well, boy, I have to think on that one. The well, the heating definitely. You don't need to heat anything. Mm-hmm. Never, never heat. In fact, you're you're actually by heating. You're making it ruining your honey. Yeah, you're making it worse. Uh, yeah, you're 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 taking all these beautiful honey aromas and heating them away, and they're gone, and you can't ever get them back. So yeah, don't ever heat. All right. So now, uh, what's your what, what's an interesting discovery you've made during the meat making process? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Just say. Uh, well, what do I do that I've dis- uh You know what? I can't say. I have to honestly say I've learned a lot of mine just by reading what other people do, so I can't necessarily say I've discovered anything. Um, I have, although a lot of people will just do it, I, I, I have a very good palate, I think. So I, my husband will say he can't, he can't taste any of the subtle things I'm tasting. And so I'll go in and just taste as like, well, no, it needs a little more. It needs a little more of this. It needs a little more of that. And he's like, oh, it tastes good to me. It's like, no. <laughs> and when I am done, it's like, oh, yeah, that's great. So, um, but other than that, you know, they said, and I, I will say I discovered the hard way on checking my pH. <laughs> so, all right, there you go. pH is important. pH is important. All right. Now, what is something that you wish more people would drink or explore? Why is it mead? And how should people explore mead? Um, people should definitely explore more mead. Uh, mead, mead is just, uh, you know, people have gotten the wrong idea about mead. Mead is very drinkable. It's, you know, if you like, a lot of people will like wines. If you like white wines, you're definitely going to like mead, uh, for the most part. I've not found a white wine drinker that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on my meads, that is. Um. Some of the red wine drinkers are going to love the heavy fruit uh, meads that other people make. Uh, I haven't made any of those yet. I'm working on them. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think, and people that like beer like mead. Uh, mead is just wonderful. How can you not like honey drinks? Uh, I don't know. I just find it really, really good. Um, but I think I think people get this idea. They've had these meads that were made 15 years ago, 20 years ago at Renaissance festivals. Mm-hmm. That really, I mean, and I, I would say nowadays some of the Renaissance festivals are getting much better meads. But back back, you know, so people have gotten a scare of meads. Oh, there's there there's these farm things that nobody likes, but they're not. They're really good. They're really wonderful drinks and and i think uh i think people need to just go out find a, uh, a meadery somewhere and try some of them and you're gonna 
well, fall in love with them the way I did. And I, I will say one thing I do think that has changed. You talked a little bit about like structuring like white wine. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, at least when I first started drinking meads in like the, the late 90s, there were some commercial meads on the market, but they were very structured like white wines. They were like you almost got no honey character. Oh, yeah, no, I are all honey. And well, you, you still you still had that bright acid character of a white wine, the bright fruitiness of white wine. But and I'm seeing this with more and more meat makers now, where even if you're balancing in that direction, there's still more of an expression of the honey and the fruit. Yep. And so I think that's one of the biggest changes that's happened. Yeah. All right. So, Susan, last question, and then we can go back to being normal people. Um, oh, I'm never going back there. Well, of course not. <laughs> not. Not that you now have your own tasting room with your own fermentation vegetables. Um, what non beery slash meaty thing are you fascinated with or obsessed by? Because we talked earlier that we all have obsessions in this hobby, in this world. What's so, non-mead? Yeah, non-mead, non-beery type thing are you obsessed by? Uh, my grandchildren. <laughs> I could spend lots and lots of hours with them. Um, other than that, I, well... So you go from being grandmama to master bean maker back to grandmama? Pretty much. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, obsessed with my dogs. Yeah. So. Uh, well, and I have a cat, too. I am. I definitely am hooked on my cat. Is, is there ever going to be the possibility of a, a, a meadery cat? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't want to clean up cat hair here, too. <laughs> I have too much. <laughs> All right. Well, hey. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you yeah. for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the meads. Yay. You're welcome. Uh, now, where can people find your meads? Uh, you can order them uh, if you're not from if in thirty from about 33 states. can order them uh, through vinoshipper.com. Um, otherwise, uh, within North Dakota. Uh, and, and that's vinoshipper, V-I-N-O, shipper.com. Yep. yep. All right. There you go. Now, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not kidding. If you get a chance, if you can find your find your hands on some really nice, high quality meads, and I suggest some of the ones we hear from Prairie Rose, you definitely should give them a shot. I think it will change your mind. Meads not just for dessert. Meads not just for you know, getting tanked at the Ren Fair. Mead no. is mead is for yeah, good good old everyday drinking and enjoying. Yes, definitely. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And that was Drew's conversation with our dear friend Susan Rude of Prairie Rose Meadery in Fargo, North Dakota, the hardest working woman in the mead business. We're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll have our quick tip for this episode. We're back, and it is time for the quick tip. So, Drew, what you got? Well, I figured since we were just talking mead with Susan, it would be appropriate for us to have, well, a mead tip. And this one comes courtesy of my good friend uh, Dana Cordes, who uh, (laughs) posted some wonderful pictures on Facebook the other night of a degassing experiment gone wrong. So if you've ever made wine or made mead, 
one of the steps that people often talk about is that you want to degas your must, right? Uh, so knock the CO2 out because wine yeast have problems with CO2. Uh, go look at our Cezanne results uh, as an example of something that may or may not prove that. And so Dana had a mixer type bar, a deaerator. They actually sell uh, specialty deaerators for winemakers. And it attaches to a drill. You stick it in through the mouth of your carboy and spin her up. Well, Dana will tell you that he ran his for about five minutes on a, just kind of a nice, gentle, medium speed to degas the, the mead. And then finally getting tired of waiting, kicked it on high and promptly, Uh-oh. yeah, and promptly blew mead everywhere. So <laughs> the quick tip of the week is, oh, my God, babies, be kind when you're degassing your mead. Uh, don't get, <laughs> don't, uh, don't go too hard. Don't go too fast. A uh, lot of debate back and forth between people on whether or not you need to degas in primary, which is where uh, Dana was doing it. I, I don't usually degas in primary, but I know a lot of expert mead makers who do. So if you're going to do your degassing in primary, take a tip from Dana and his very sticky garage floor now. Uh, degas gently, uh, at least while you're in primary. Wait to really beat it up until later. <laughs> if, if you think back to that interview that we did with Mino Choi, Mino, who has won more awards than I care to think about because it makes me sick, um, pretty much degasses consistently all the way through fermentation. Mm-hmm. You know, like pretty much every day he will take that fermenter and shake it and degas it. So, you know, there's a, a whole lot of techniques and theories. Yeah, but I think there's a big difference between degassing, you know, by swirling, you know, nice and gently every day versus degassing by beating the damn thing up with a drill. Yeah, right. Well, you know, and, and uh, one of my few attempts at winemaking, I read that you were supposed to degas, so I took my mixer, hooked it up to a drill, stuck it in the carboy full of wine, started just running it as fast as it would go, and I discovered that was not the right thing to do. <laughs> there was wine all over my kitchen. I was going to say, lose some socks. Well, but hey, there you go. There's your quick tip for the week. Uh, if you're going to degas, uh, make sure that you're degassing gently because otherwise you will suffer a meat explosion. That's right. All right. And now, Denny, it's time for something other than beer. Okay. Something other than beer. Something that uh, I discovered watching on PBS and I have subsequently bought the Blu-ray of it is a series called Sound Breaking. It is a kind of an examination of music, but kind of from the side of the technology that goes into it. Uh, it has some of the best artist interviews that I have ever seen. And believe me, I've been watching music interview shows for a long, long time. And the people that they managed to talk to and the, the depth and scope of the interviews is truly stunning. Uh, you get to hear some fantastic music. If you're uh, an audio nerd like me, you get to see some amazing equipment and hear people talk about it. Uh, all around, if, it's just one of those things that if you're into music, you need to watch this. It's called Sound Breaking. It may be available for streaming from your local PBS station. 
If not, there are DVDs and Blu-rays of it available out there, and you need to go find this. Well, there you go. More audio nerdery for your ears. As if, That's right. As if we're That's not right. delivering high enough quality audio experiences to you. <laughs> we, we try. We try. Yeah. All right. Now what else do we have to do? Aren't we done? Pretty much we have to get out of here, but not until we remind everybody to uh, get ready to register for HomebrewCon on March 7th. It's coming right up, and uh, it's something that you want to do if you're a homebrewer. Oh, there you go. And besides HomebrewCon, the other big thing that's going on in the AHA world is the governing committee election. Uh, Drew and I have both been on the governing committee for a long time, and uh, it's it's a great way to help serve homebrewers. And you can serve homebrew, too, I guess. But, uh, you know, we have some great candidates this year, some incumbents who are running again, some new people. Go to the AHA website, click on the link for the Governing Committee election, assuming you're an AHA member. Read through the biographies of all of them and uh, vote for the ones that you think will do the best for you. And don't forget, if you're not an AHA member and you want to vote in the Governing Committee election, click on the AHA link on our website to join the AHA and give us a little kickback, please. That's right. And get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine, too, which is a great magazine. So I guess that's about all we can think of to talk about. Thank you very much for joining us here on Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we are at EXP Brewing. We are on Facebook. I'm on a whole bunch of different beer discussion forums, and you can usually find Drew hanging out on the Reddit homebrewing forum. Don't forget that if you want to uh, ask us questions or uh, suggest topics, talk about recipes, whatever, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So uh, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.